I'm super happy. Are you happy? Welcome to the BU Find Happy Podcast. Here you'll find tips and tricks to inspire you on your way to happiness, to live a courageous life of authenticity, and learn how to speak your truth with grace. I'm Michaela Johnson, and welcome to our podcast. Welcome back to the BU Find Happy podcast and our But Why series. Guys, I've been getting so much great feedback on this series, and it means a lot to hear from you. If you're liking this podcast, please click like, hit subscribe, and thank you, as always, for coming back to inspire and fill your life with a little bit more happiness during an absolutely crazy time. And don't forget, if you want more empowerment in your life, check out Empowered, a motivational journal for women on Amazon today. Austin, it is so great to have you on the BU Find Happy podcast. And I know this has been quite the journey for us to be able to connect and record. So thank you for all of the transitions and for being here today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and it's so t- let give the listeners a little backstory on uh, and who you are, what you do, and kind of how you got involved in the world of comedy. Oh wow, I feel like there's so much. Okay, so <laughs> um, who I am, what I do. So I I'm a software engineer, <laughs> technically by trade. Um, I work at Microsoft, and I also do comedy. So I do stand up and sketch comedy and improv and I've been doing comedy probably since like actually performing it since I was like I guess technically like 17 and then um so I started in high school like doing like writing for like the senior show and stuff like that and my friends were always telling me I'm like funny and stuff They're like you're the funniest person I know and then I was inspired kind of probably from that early encouragement to when I was 18, I took a stand-up comedy class in New York City. I'm from Connecticut. And so, like, during our senior internship, so, like, after the AP test, senior year, everyone can either do an internship or a project. So I t- did this coding project, and it really wasn't that much work. Like, everyone was kind of working, like, a lot and going doing like, I feel bad for the kids that had internships because they were working, like, nine to five and, like, had real jobs. But some of the kids on projects like didn't have that much to do. And so every Wednesday, me and my friend, we would go to New York City and do this stand-up comedy class. And it was kind of hacky. Like we went in and it was three hours and everyone did two minutes. And um, I, I got hooked on it from there and I started doing shows. I went to UCLA. I started the comedy club there called Shenanigans, which is still big now. And after college, went to Seattle to do to work here. And then I started a show called Socially Inept that we still, well, I guess we had to stop in March because of the pandemic where we'd go from all the big tech cities like um, Silicon Valley, I guess what, Mountain View. Um, we do LA, San Francisco, New York, Denver. And we're doing these big tech roast shows and getting like 200, 300 people to come. And we were traveling around. It was so much fun. And wow. since the pandemic... Uh, what I've been doing is I can't really do stand up and I can't continue groundlings, which I started doing. 
So I've been doing TikTok and I've been leaning more into the impression stuff because I, I love impressions and I haven't been able to um, just explore it as much. So I, in like May, I was doing like a Cuomo and someone sent it to Z100 in New York, which is a pretty big station there. And they reached out to me and they had me on the show. And then I don't know what happened, but in July, my account went crazy. It was like, I went from 10,000 to 100,000 followers <laughs> in like a well, couple of weeks from Trump impressions. So well, I, I have some thoughts about that, but I wanted to kind of circle back on what you said about um, you know, being in high school at 17 and kind of having this experience that, that kind of shaped you. And I, I had a similar experience. I mean, I was a writer from a young age, but I had my first work published when I was 14 and oh, wow. yeah. And then from there I went on to get a, a job at our local newspaper and eventually full circle in life, um, found myself back in the same small town and became the interim freelance editor for a while of that same paper. So, um, wow. and you know, be, now having a couple best-selling books and stuff. And it's just, it's interesting though, how at that like formidable age, what people say has such a profound effect on our being, you know? Um, so I think that's really cool that, that you, that you had that experience and that it kind of, you know, sent you down this, this path. And I most certainly, that is how I found you. Um, I was actually at a, at a pool party and a good friend said, Oh, you got to watch this, um, this, this guy, this is so funny. And we were kind of just joking about, well, we were talking about how right now, like everybody's so tense and there's just so much heaviness and that like just lightening up and laughing can really have such a, such a great, um, it's just such a great mood changer. And so we saw your Trump impersonation on, uh, uh, the day of the week and, oh my God, we were rolling. Like I literally had tears coming down my face and um, it felt so good to have like happy, like legit happy tears. Um, and I kind of grew up in a family of, uh, I'll call them comedians, but we're not like real comedians or anything like that. But like, literally we poke fun, make jokes about just everything that happens in life. And so, uh, I do have a couple good friends from when I worked in radio that are comedians, actually, uh, one of them, you may even know, um, her name's Sandy Steck and she's a radio show host in San Francisco on star one one three. And she's, um, she had kind of shared with me early on in our college days about how a lot of times uh, comedy comes from like her skits come from these kind of sour or um, or kind of depressing or sad experiences that she had in her life. What do you think about that? I mean, does some of your life influence um, as far as your skits and stuff come from more like dark things or, or maybe not not the happiest things that have happened? Um, I think that's where my sense of humor probably comes from. Um, just, you know, like even as a kid, like I would try to be funny probably to, I remember I was like trying to make friends and I realized I didn't really know how to make friends. So I thought if you make people laugh, they'll like you. And then, <laughs> which like, is not true. It's like, <laughs> they'll think you're entertaining, but that doesn't make you likable. It doesn't make you a good listener. It doesn't make you like necessarily like pleasant. Um, so I kind of learned incorrectly how to like, um, just have social interactions probably in elementary school and middle school. Um, from that, my parents were divorced. I don't know, probably affected me, but in terms of my actual content, um, it's interesting. Cause I don't think that 
a lot of my content, my content's kind of like sillier and like kind of lighthearted. Um, oftentimes if it's not an impression, I mean, it's the whole essence of my humor. I think it's pretty observational. Like even an impression, I guess you're observing someone and kind of like making fun of how they act. But I don't know. I don't really have that much like dark stuff. And maybe I should, probably should just talk about my life more because I guess that's something I don't do as much in my stand-up. Because um, a lot of the best comedians, they'll talk about really personal things that are hard for them. But I don't know. I, I don't really get that vulnerable. Maybe I should. It, well, it's it's interesting that you that you term it like that because I think that that is exactly what it is. I mean, there there's this component of risk that you're taking inevitably, even if you're not sharing a personal story, right? Because, I mean, I always think like, I've been to so many comedy shows. I mean, before COVID, that was a big thing that we would do. We would go watch comedy and stuff. And um, there's always that moment where people aren't laughing, where you're like, oh, I feel so bad for this guy right now or whatever. Um, So you're kind of being vulnerable anyway. I mean, just, I think any, any person who's an entertainer who, or who is taking a stage of some sort is it just inherently taking a risk and and that that's impressive i mean to be able to do that where do you think you find your courage from huh um where do i find it i mean you just have to do it i don't i don't know i mean it's just scary um yeah i mean it is vulnerable like you go up on stage and you're like this is what i think is funny if you don't laugh i'm just a weird person <laughs> that doesn't so- relate to other humans So how do you get through that? Like if you have something where you say something and people don't laugh, how do you, (laughs) do you just kind of like know that that's par for the course and you just, Um, if you're a good comedian, you like maybe briefly acknowledge it in a funny way and move on. If you're a bad comedian, then you acknowledge it and like curse yourself on stage and then like take out your notebook and rip up your jokes. And then like everyone is uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, I mean, it really depends how to handle it. I mean, I've definitely been in a mindset where I'm like, I'm bombing. This is so awkward. <laughs> what do I do? This sucks. Like an open mic, especially. Less so at a show, but at a show, that, that sucks. I mean, it happened. Everyone does that. Um, it's just, it really is just how you handle it um, and what stage you're at. This kind of determines how you handle it. In a way. But, but that's so true for life, right? Like, I mean, any kind of little setback, like, it, it really is about how you handle it and how you bounce back from it and how resilient you are and how you move forward. And I like what you said about, Hey, sometimes you just got to call it out. And, and that's kind of my approach to life too, is like, well, that was an epic fail. <laughs> like that yeah, didn't work, exactly. you know, and just embrace it and move on. I'm, I'm actually writing a, um, a chapter for an anthology right now. And that's exactly what I'm talking about is, is how, what I've learned in my life is, it's, it's really about how it's about how you show up in a vulnerable way, acknowledge when you failed as mm-hmm. part of the stepping stones and building blocks to the next thing. Cause you learn from that and you move on. And then, um, it just being able to really speak your truth in a way that's graceful and say like, it's okay. It's all right for me that this happened. And, um, and I'm still going to be here tomorrow and I'm still going to make things, uh, look, look good. And, uh, in what feels right to me. So that's, re- that's really nice. Um, yeah, definitely on stage too. Like, um, it's really jarring if you're clearly bombing and then you don't acknowledge it. It's like, there's this weird tension of like, all right, this guy's just not even on our page. Like he does he even know what's going on. Like, can he even see that? 
this isn't going well, this is so uncomfortable. But then if you acknowledge it, like what? I don't know, some people will be like, I say something about how it was like, oh, was that like too dark or something, like whatever. Just like something to like cut the tension, acknowledge how they're feeling. In a weird way, the comedian being empathetic to the audience, which then they're like, okay, he gets us now. This is kind of, it's funny that he acknowledged it or something. Yeah. Um, I agree that acknowledgement is really critical. It, so, so one of the things that I was thinking about as I was prepping for our, our episode today is uh, that lately it seems like you could sit, literally say the sky is blue and people would be like, no, it's not. It's totally gray. There's a lot of fog. Like you're crazy. I think it's white. Like there, it just seems to me lately, like people don't agree on things. People are easily triggered and offended by what seems to be things that we can take as face value or that we used to be able to all agree on. Um, and so how are you maneuvering through the sensitivity of people and they're kind of quick to trigger? I'm sure doing impersonations for Trump and Cuomo and um, all the, all of these kinds of guys who are, you know, really I say kinds of guys, like we're talking about the president of the United States. Here. Yeah. Um, how are you maneuvering through people who um, probably love Trump and find it funny, love Trump, find it offensive, hate Trump, find it funny, hate Trump, find it offensive. Like I'm sure you're seeing all of sure, these different yeah, totally. kinds of things. How are you moving through that? Honestly, so that affects me the least. I'm like, I don't even care if I do a Trump impression. I mean, um, I mean, I have my own political views. I'm probably more like in the moderate anyway, by the way. But um, I think that the people that like Trump, um, they're like, oh, this is funny. I like Trump. I find this funny. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like, I don't necessarily like him, but like, um, I, I just find his mannerisms funny. So I'm going to make fun of him. And then the people that uh, don't like Trump are like, oh, I don't like Trump. This is funny. And then... I mean, I don't really see people that are super negative about it. I mean, a lot of some people really hate Trump so much that they're like, your impression's so good that I need to not <laughs> like hear it because it like triggers me or something. Wow. Because like, I just don't like him so much that people literally have a very visceral reaction um, to him. Um, I mean, which is fair if you're affected by uh, something like close to home for you. Uh, yeah, but so my thing on that, and, and this is what I've been telling people a lot lately, like I actually recently shut down my social media to focus on some writing projects that I have, uh, because I can't do both right now. It's too, there's just too much, but um, I find that it, you know, it's like what I say to people is, hey, I'm not here to create this steady boat for you. Like I'm here to empower you to face a stormy sea with your own paddle. And people don't like that. Like, if you are so insanely triggered by something or someone, that is about you. That is 100 about you. Like, you need to dig deep. You need to look inside yourself and you need to figure that out. Because I guarantee you, the other person is not experiencing the same emotion, at least not at your level. And, um, it, it, and we're talking, like, I'm talking whether you know a pr this person or whether you don't know this person. Um, and it's been really incredible to me from a psychotherapy standpoint. And I've, and I've experienced this with clients. I have clients on both sides, um, that it, the intense, overwhelming emotion, it's like, okay, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who we're talking about, 
the fact that you're having this kind of visceral reaction as you describe it, or this kind of emotion associated with this, we need to tap into that. We need to look at why that's happening. That's probably so, fair. I mean, if you think about, I mean, you know more about way more. You're, you're also a psychotherapist, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you're, I mean, you're the expert, but I mean, if somebody has like develops a phobia of something or if someone has like literally PTSD or something like that, I mean, sure it's on them, but it's valid that they feel a certain way about that thing, whatever it is, whatever the targeted thing is, maybe they're scared or maybe they're like violently triggered or whatever it is. Um, right. Their experience is definitely yeah. theirs. Yeah. Isn't it possible that how they feel. someone can be just as, you know, a victim of some sort of like maybe violent crime or someone in a car accident might have PTSD that someone is so negatively affected by, you know, someone in, in power who's like the president, like almost the, and it's interesting too, because it's magnified by um, whatever media consumption uh, people have. So whether it's the reality or not, like obviously see I'm so like not informed enough but if someone <laughs> if someone has like an say someone has an issue about one of Trump's policies um and they're like really triggered by his stance on it or whatever and they get really offended that um he feels this way and he's in this position of power um depending on how that person also consumes media it's magnified so their social media feed would show an extreme of just a more polarized version. Like you're seeing all these um, videos of whether maybe you're uh, on, on the right and you're seeing videos of um, liberal people like protesters, like jumping on police cars and like throwing a punch at a cop or something like that. And you're like, that's wrong. Or maybe you're on the left and then you see um, someone in their um, Mustang or whatever driving, running protesters over. And you're like, well, they're fucked up. Either way, you're going to see based on, you know, what you type of content you engage with, like Facebook underlying, it does have, um, if you export your data, you could like see how they classify your political affiliation. There was somewhere I was able to see that where they use machine learning to identify your political affiliation. So I, I don't know if you saw the social dilemma, that show that everyone's talking about, but or that movie on Netflix, but. I mean, I've I been talking about this for a while. Because I'm kind of been, I've, I've actually kind of been boycotting Netflix for a hot minute. But um, more okay. importantly, I've been, I've been kind of like, I, I just feel like any documentary at this point, I, I don't know how I'd, I'd have to really have a good grounding before I started into it because I, I know it's that so neutral. much is manipulated, you know? I think that one's pretty neutral. I mean, they talk about both sides, but this is something I've been even talking about a while for a while. It's just objectively how this stuff works with the algorithms. So um, well, what you're I, bringing up is, I mean, this is something we've been talking about a lot on this podcast lately um, with the mainstream media and social media censorship and how I, I did, I saw a video on how it's psychological warfare. Really. They learn what people in certain communities based upon certain posts or certain groups that they're a part of, like their community groups and how they engage with each other and what their political beliefs are. And then they can further um, the narrative from what they're feeding and what they're showing and what ads they're putting out and all of that. Yeah, and totally. then the government can even use that 
Like Uh, if you come to this rural town, you know, these people are going to behave this certain way because they've already demonstrated that via their social media and what they post. Maybe. I feel like that that gets into a little conspiratorial stuff, but I think that um, as far as the algorithms go, I mean, I don't think it's intentional. I do think that the like developers behind this stuff, they're just like normal people. Like they really don't care. They're just like going out with their friends in like Capitol Hill in Seattle and like going on hikes. Like, uh, there's nothing like malicious about these people. They're just like maybe they don't know what they're building. But a lot of the the way these algorithms work is that um, it does encourage polarization because um, the machine learning will identify. So think about the incentive of the um, media company, whether it's Facebook, YouTube, um, Twitter, or whatever. Um, you spe- well, I guess specifically Facebook and YouTube. Okay, so they're an example is they they monetize through ads, so they make money if you're on their platform looking at ads because the advertisers pay them. They pay for their ad to be placed, they pay for the clicks, um, impressions, et cetera. So if, you're, if their incentive is to keep you on the application, how are they gonna keep you on the application? Well, they have a lot of metrics they can use to see what type of content you engage with. What are you commenting on? What are you reacting to, uh, et cetera. So, if the machine learning algorithm uh, identifies that you react to a certain type of content consistently, whatever it classifies it as, it could be dogs, like little cats in baskets or whatever, or um, extreme left or extreme right, um, they will, it'll have some sort of like cluster of similar type of content and it'll just keep showing you that type of content because it knows you engage with that type of content based on historical trends and you're going to keep engaging with that type of content. So as a byproduct of this, not intentional, um, people are being shown things that further polarize their opinions and their views. So left, you're going to see more and more left, right? It's going to see more and more right. And then you end up with a completely divided country because everyone's addicted to these apps. I mean, it's, it's shown that people's response to like getting likes and stuff and how they get hooked on these apps, it's like a dopamine um, rush. So people are addicted to something, to a type of media that is polarizing their, their opinions. Literally, I say, like, even to my son, that warps your brain. And I know that it warps mine too. And that's, and that's exactly one of the reasons that I've had to take more social media breaks. And by that, I mean, you know, freezing my account or just whatever, because, or deleting the app from my phone because of the fact that like, at the end of the day, uh, I have, I feel an obligation to be a citizen journalist. And the best way I do that is by really looking at what's, what's in front of me physically. And, um, and then seeking out information with purpose and intention rather than clicking to an app that I know is tracking me and is putting what they think I'm going to like more of in front of me. Yeah. Where it just changes not- whether you like it or not, how you you're thinking about the world and seeing absolutely. things. Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. It really does. And then the other piece of that is I think as humans, we, we want to fit in. Like you talked about earlier, like you wanted to make friends in school and you found that if you entertained people, um, they gravitated towards you. And I, and I do think that that's, that's a truth. I mean, I think that um, people absolutely want to feel like a collective part of something and on social media, you almost get that instantly with little to no work. Like you yeah. can find something that you can tag onto like, oh, all these people like to flip their pillow over to the cold side like me. 
Exactly. <laughs> or whatever it is. I, I do want to say, I want to go back to the point though, and then I, I'm interested in, in talking about this, but I think that based on this polarization, that um, if somebody feels triggered by Trump, for example, makes sense why they're getting fed. I mean, they're, they're seeing, well, one, obviously like they can have their opinion on him is bad or, or not. But then the point is that it, it gets magnified. Um, so that, that's kind of like, that's how I think about it. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, so to, but, to go back yeah. to that, because when we were talking about that, I, I did jot a couple of notes and that is like, so as someone, you use the car example, a car accident example, and as someone who's been hit by a semi-truck and then hit a telephone, oh my God. I can wow. tell you, like, I felt that, right? That outrage in the moment that this thing happened to me and that it was out of my control or that this person did this thing or that this person was responsible. But at the end of the day, and this is what I try to share with my clients, um, it, it does not matter what happened to you, how it happened to you or who did it. What matters is how you recover and respond. Sure. And so you can, you can get so stuck in that, that victim mentality of, ah, this person is doing this and they have all the control and whatever, when really the only thing that's going to help you is coming to peace and terms with it yourself, learning how to forgive and let go. Like the only way through pain and anger is through forgiveness and moving forward. And then is also making tangible action toward change in your life that feels good to you. Something that's, that's within fair. your control. Um, so for in this example with the semi-truck driver that hit me, um, I, to me, part of my healing and part of my moving forward was to write a letter to that person to say, hey, you know, you're, if I had been a high school driver with less experience, I would probably be dead. Like you need to be really careful when you're operating that big piece of equipment. And, and I needed to write that letter. I ended up not sending that letter to him, um, but I needed to write it out. I needed to get it out. And I think that for some people, they do need to take that next step to like write a letter to somebody who's done something to them or whatever. But I think where we get stuck is we think that somehow living in that space of outrage is going to be productive and it is productive for a while. It's productive if you start using that to identify what you can change in your life and what action you can take. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the outrage that people are having, um, especially with like um, the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that, which is warranted is, you know, it's causing people to take action. It's causing people to donate. It's causing people to do, to protest in a good way. Um, and for like, that is a way that outrage is turning into action. But in terms of your own mental health, um, and feeling good internally. I agree with what you said. Um, it makes sense that, I mean, that's something you have to come to peace with. Um, and you're not like, come, oh, wow. I hope I'm not just sounding like, oh yeah, come to peace with like all the police brutality issues. But I'm saying just like, um, if you feel extreme anguish, regardless what the cause is, um, only you can change your state. Um, 
is kind of what I'm saying. Like, I, I agree with you that yeah, but at the same I, time, we can't like force, we can't say like, while I agree that it is the correct way to go and it makes sense. And I, I believe that people should be more consciously uh, focusing on their own like self-improvement, their mental health. I'm not going to go, if someone doesn't want to, I'm not going to say you have to just like, okay, you probably should. And if you, if you don't, if we can't, and if I want to have a conversation with you and, and you really don't want to, because it's really triggering you or something like that. And, and you just can't have this, someone can't have that conversation. And I can be like, you should, you should be able to, I'll just be like, okay, I won't talk to you or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. I I th- I, and I think, I think for me, the big thing that, and I, and I've brought this up before on, on this podcast is I just don't see in any circumstance how violence and hate is, can be a catalyst for change. Like that space is not one that's productive to positive change. So um, in that sense, I feel like, it, yes, it, it can, it like outrage and anger can, can fire up that passion to, to lead to change. But there's a lot of work that people have to do too in their own space to figure out how they can move forward in a way that's, that's with love and kindness. Um, I mean, you know, if we were to tap into, to people like Bob Marley and Martin Luther King and just, just men who really stood for that in that kind of way, I think that um, we have a long way to go. I feel like we have a lot to learn. And part of that, I think, is because truthfully, our culture um, for generations now has not really had uh, some of these immense, intense sufferings. Like we really, and I'm not speaking for everybody, right? On an individual level, people have had their traumas, they've had their suffrages, they've had their experiences. But our generation really has not had to live through uh, war. It has not had to live through famine. It has not had to live through some of these these really deep things. And so what's beautiful about that is, truthfully, we've had a relatively peaceful existence in the way that we should be able to, to, to make movement and to make change um, because we have the foundation now. All of our forefathers and foremothers, um, they, they laid that. You know what I mean? They laid it to where we have a relatively uh, good foundation to to move forward with. At least that's my personal thoughts on that. It's interesting because it it seems like, I mean, there's always the two camps of people. And I also really, I have to say, disclaimer, I'm so not informed about this, probably not even qualified to talk about this. But um, a lot of people have always sided with like some people like Martin Luther King's perspective and some like the... um, what was it, Malcolm X a perspective of like a more militant kind of way of uh, achieving results for fighting for what you want for. And it's so interesting because it's easy to talk about peace and that being the correct way. And like, obviously, I would even say anyone would be like, oh, yeah, it's preferable to have the peaceful approach. But at the same time, just to play devil's advocate, I mean, most things that are, if we think about change in society, um, and I don't necessarily think this is good, but it seems how like how it is, is, I mean, we have war at the same time. We constantly have been as just like civilizations warring and conquering. And that is how change has happened historically, which is, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's good. It's just true. I mean, 
how do we feel about the fact that even coming here, like you mentioned our forefathers, they've set the stage for peace, but like, is it correct that there was a genocide of like all the original um, population on the continent? Like, I don't know, but, but if they weren't genocided, which is terrible, we wouldn't be here. So I had, it's like, if you look at it at that scale, it's kind of just, it's a complete contradiction to what we, we prefer and what has happened. And it's kind of sad. I, and I don't really know what to make of it. But. Well, and I think that it's, it is human nature. I mean, the greatest change comes from the biggest discomfort. And so like, but I think about this, like, let's take just sib- uh, siblings. Okay. And one takes the other one's toy and the other one gets outraged, right? Gets really angry, gets really pissed off and then maybe punches the other sibling. And then the other sibling takes the toy back and then the other sibling grabs it again and it, and breaks it into a million pieces. And then, and then they're just, they're tossing and tumbling and all of this. Okay. All of that happened, but how did they move forward from there? Right. How do they, they don't continue in the hatred and the anger and all of that. That's, that's not how they go from there. Right. They have to come to terms together. They have to come to some sort of peace with what has happened internally and then they have to somehow make some sort of amends with each other whether Mm -hmm. they agree to disagree on whose toy it was to begin with or however it kind of comes out like um at some point that outrage process stops and it's like okay what did we learn like where do we go you know where do we go now at least that's how i think about it sure like at our most basic selves because kids are a good they're i think they're a good example because they don't come with all those preconceived notions. They're acting on a very humanistic level. You know, they're, 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 uh, they're emotional and their rational minds. They work on the most fundamental level without a lot of political correctness, at least in younger years. Well, you it's know? interesting. Cause I would compare if with your analogy, I would think it's similar to, okay. So you have two siblings or little kids. Um, so one kid takes the other's toy and then, they like fight or whatever, like you said. They don't destroy it. So one kid has the other one's toy. And it was originally the other one's. So okay. Like I guess the correct way is that they're peaceful now. The other kid who had his toy taken just accepts that it was taken and then moves on and lives peacefully. Um, that seems kind of like an equivalence. And then eventually that the other kid, for whatever reason, is over years and years and years <laughs> building resentment for that kid keeping his toy and he's like, all right, but seriously, give it back now. Like, come on. It's been like, whatever, many years. And then the other kid's like, okay, I had enough. Just give it to me. And then he punches him in the face. And then there's no peaceful way that, I mean, maybe they'll negotiate the toy back, but the kid has every, all his incentives are saying, well, I took this, it's mine. That's how it is now. You have to deal with it. So the other kid is like, well, okay, well, I don't think that's how it should be. They're not going to come to any peaceful negotiation. So the other kid just punches him in the face and takes it back. I mean, that that seems more closely similar to, to the kind of thing that I was positing. Yeah. And I mean, I can see where you're going with that. I can see I, I can draw the analogy. <laughs> um, and then but then there's this part of me that says, well, you should have dealt with that at the time. But obviously, we're talking about children. And not like, and I'm not talking about any issue in specific. I'm just saying like, like, yeah, it would be difficult to like countries have this with like, um, just 
dealing with like, land. okay, this country took yeah. this land and this, right, right. That. like, this is right. just the nature. I don't know. It seems like that's more closely to the nature of how society ebbs and flows. There's that peaceful time, sure, between the two punches that right, they deal with. Right. So you bring up an interesting point, though, about kind of just human conflict in general. And so that leads me to another question that I had for you, because you do you do the uh, socially inept program, which is the tech roasting. Yeah. And I'm curious what you think about roasting as, because um, really, I mean, it's kind of calling it out like we just did, right? It's you're you're calling out someone for for something for yeah. what is a perceived truth, right? But in a way that's comical, and some people can find borderline offensive. Like, what do you think about roasting? Oh yeah, so I. I don't know. Roasting is interesting. I feel like for some, in some way, it's like a safe haven for some comedians to be kind of offensive and more edgier than they usually would be because it's just so understood that it's going to be offensive. Um, But I do, I mean, it really depends. If you look at like roast battle roasts, like in the comedy store, that's like, they go deep, like about like, if someone in your family has had cancer and were a rape victim or something, they'll tear you apart. Like, I don't know. They'll go into the darkest, like it doesn't matter. Nothing's really off limits. They'll go as dark as, as whatever. Um, and at at least for our show, it's less dark. Like I struggle a little bit with like this whole, I know laughter is the best medicine. And I think that sometimes I think lately, you know, people can be a little sensitive and you have to be careful. And I don't think that's necessarily good. But then I also think that like people can go too far with stuff and it can just be hurtful and not how. Oh, totally. I mean, that's when you're entering a roast. I mean, I think that's for the audience to be aware of by being in that room, you're consenting to that. You're, you're going to a roast. So you should know that that it's, as it's very dark. Um, and as long as you know that, I think it's fine. Uh, but if you're not going for that and then like, if you're just going for a regular comedy show and then it gets extremely dark, you might be offended rightfully, or like you might not be expecting that, but it depends. Like the club, the comedy clubs are going to usually be a little darker thing. People are going to say more offensive stuff than they might, than they wouldn't like, obviously like a corporate setting or like a cruise ship. Um, right. So right. it really depends. Like, as, as someone who's participating in comedy, because it's basically this like weird so temporary social construct. You're participating in it for an hour. You should kind of know what you're signing up for. Um, obviously, if yeah, like I said, if you, if you're not signing up for that, then you could be rightfully like put in a position where you're like, I don't want this. What the hell? This is messed up. So I just read this great book um, by Dan Crenshaw called Fortitude, and he talks about how there was a part um, in which a guy from SNL had kind of roasted him, um, and he had his eye blown off in military, uh, in war, and that sort of thing, and um, that a lot of people, veterans and things like that, were like offended that it had gone too far, and he says, you know... I could have taken the approach that a lot of people take and I could have said, Oh, you're, you know, that was horrible. You're an evil, you're an awful person. You apologize. And, you know, he says, you see this a lot where celebrities will make a misstep or something. And then people just throw the book at them and then they end up 
um, completely profusely apologizing, deleting their tweets or, delete, you know, deleting their whatevers. And he didn't take that approach. He actually um, went on the show and gave the guy an opportunity to kind of explain where he was coming from and just kind of they had a dialogue. And then he ended up getting an opportunity to roast him back. And he said, this is an example of how we should be. We need to not, we need to not take such an instant reaction and just, oh, that offended me. And I'm so angry and step back and kind of look at the situation and have like a human dialogue about it. And from there, positive growth can happen. And I completely agreed with that. And so like, I think if you're someone who's at a comedy show and you expected it to be a certain way and it offended you. Um, you, you, like you said, you could feel rightfully offended, but then have some responsibility and ownership on that and then figure out how you can kind of proceed without, you know, maybe slamming back or attacking back. Like there's, there's a way that you can kind of move through that stuff in the moment. I think, I think that's a great example. Um, and so I definitely, it's a very blurry line, uh, for comedians of what can be made fun of or what can't. And I think in general, a good rule of thumb is kind of like are you punching down or are you not if you're punching down it's really not that funny like are you just like am i gonna make fun of like like a poor disabled like homeless person like what's the point it's just like not it's just like not that it's it's not nice i don't know yeah but if you're making fun of someone who's like like making fun of trump is like well I'm pretty much, I'm not punching down. This is technically the most powerful person in the world. So, you not, yeah, I don't, like, you sure you can get offended, but I don't feel bad about it. I'm not, and in no way am I uh, really punching down to someone who can't defend themselves, you know? So, it's kind of that, like that, like the guy um, who had his eye blown off, he had the opportunity to go on the show and fight back, right? So that, yeah, that's what makes it make a good a, yeah. story is that he can level the playing field. Level the playing bit. field. Yeah. But, but if you're just like in a, if someone does some like kind of, well, like it may be a generic racist joke. Um, are they going to have like how, what, what is, what are Asian people as a whole going to do to like feel that they fought, fought back or something? Maybe right. if you're making fun of one powerful Asian person or a rich Asian person who's like admirable or some, or maybe someone who's like famous or infamous, someone who's in some position of power or authority or something, then it's a little bit more level. Uh, but it, it's really a fine line. Uh, yeah. And that's yeah. true for life, right? It's a fine line. Like, and if you screw up, circle back and apologize or circle back and own your part or just f- figure out how you can make an, um, uh, make amends and move forward. I think that's so important. And I think that's really, gosh, if we all just took a little bit more of that right now, gosh, what a better place we would be in. Yeah. Uh, so on this podcast, we talk about a lot of tools for reducing stress, like mindfulness, um, gratitude, um, and, you know, of course, laughter being one of the best. And we also talk about meditation. And you and I had talked about this in advance. I'm not sure how you feel about it, but I was hopeful that you might be able to do a Trump impersonation for us today. You know, there's a lot of people and they say they say I have a very fantastic Trump. And we know they're telling me they're telling me a lot of things. These people, they're very nasty people, but they're very good friends of mine. 
I do guided meditation every morning. Every morning it's guided. And there's a little, he's a little Australian guy. He says, he says fantastic things. He says, we're going to be taking deep breaths in, deep breaths out. And it is so fan. You got to try this little guy. He must be a little gecko or something. He sounds like the Geico gecko. He's so fantastic. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh it's freaking awesome i was literally to like hold in my snorting that, that is so epic like you nailed trump you nail it it's so good it's so good it's stupid good but yeah i'm so glad um meditation guys is great <laughs> it's so great you gotta um, do the guided meditation you get I'm just, I wonder if Trump just like sits on a cushion for like 15 minutes every day. <laughs> what that looks like. We're With his like to, lips pursed up. <laughs> we're going to have to tweet this podcast to him and see what he thinks about meditation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yes. Yeah, so, well, thank you for combining uh, the tools that we use here to you know, find ourselves and be happy with uh, the laughter component because that is just too great. And I am sure there will be people that, you know, are offended. And hey, I say, look into that. Look into that while you're feeling triggered and explore it a little bit. Sit with it. (laughs) Well, hey, where can can people connect with you, Austin? How can they find you? find sure. more of your impersonation yeah of course find me on um, instagram at austin nasso a-u-s-t-i-n-n-a-s-s-o or on tiktok and um at the same name at austin nasso and i wanted to shout out my i said i was gonna shout out my girlfriend's book i know this probably has no relevance now but um <laughs> you can check out my girlfriend's book for um children looking to reduce flight anxiety and it might be increasingly relevant as we can fly again uh it's called manny takes flight on amazon and, and it's, it's about a bird and okay okay yes it is ironically a bird who is a little bird who's getting on the plane for the first time so yeah it's Aww, a cute book that yeah. is so cute yeah and we want to get her on to talk about that for sure um, to talk about just children's anxiety in general, because I think it's super elevated. And so I'm excited to get her back on too. I'm really looking yes. forward to that. Well, thank you again for coming on and, and having this dialogue about in the vein of laughter, but really talking about some of the more intense things that are kind of plaguing our nation right now. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. If you'd like more of what you hear on this podcast and you would like to get some awesome journaling prompts in your inbox once a month, make sure you go to my website, beyoufindhappy.com and sign up. This has been a BU Find Happy podcast. For more inspiration, check out the links.